You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking. Welcome to the first episode of Series 2. Let's see who we've got on the show with us this week. Yeah, so um from Glasgow um, and I suppose I've probably come to light in recent times around my mental health campaigning and work. Um, 28 years old um, and a husband and a father, just like any regular guy. Um, but I suppose my mental health struggles over my life and being so open and honest about it has kind of put me into the public light a little bit uh, and that's why I tend to get opportunities to speak and things like this and um, so and also I play sort of non-league football we call it junior football um, up north of the border but it's the, the equivalent of non-league um, down south so I play football part-time and I work full-time in an office and financial services. I think football is such a powerful vehicle in terms of spreading the awareness of mental health and also in, and in terms of helping people uh, keep their mental health good. I think football can be a real powerful vehicle for that. So I like the idea of football and mental health coming together. So joining me on the show this week, as usual, I've got Ant, Ryan and Katie. Um, are we all excited to be back, guys? Yeah, fresh and ready to go. Yeah. Buzzing. <laughs> and I believe you said that you were as game as a badger on the first day of mating season about getting back to series two. Does that feeling still remain? Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Uh, very excited for the people we've got coming up. Uh, very excited for the for the uh, discussions we're going to have around these people as well. I can't wait. Cannot wait. Tremendous. <laughs> I'd ask what you've all been doing, but I already know, and it's fuck all. So I'm not going to get into that. Um, although, Ant, you and I were in the park the other day kicking the uh, the, the football around at a safe social distance, of course. Um, and I believe, in fact, I don't believe I was there to witness it. You actually kicked the ball at your own child. <laughs> uh, right. What happened was is uh, I've gone to spray a, a 25-yard pass. Uh, not done it very well because I'm not a very good footballer. Um, it's took a bounce and then it's took another bounce and you know when you've got that <laughs> moment where you're like oh no it's going to hit him it's going to hit him um, and it, it, it didn't hit him too hard it, he was no. fine he, he wasn't very happy but he was he no was I think his exact words were now I'm sad oh <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week we've got Aaron Connolly a Scottish footballer Ryan do you want to tell us why we wanted to to speak to Aaron yeah, um, we first came across his article, I think it was with BBC Scotland, uh, about his his struggles, um, suicide attempts and, and the, then recovery. And he's involved in a lot of different things, mainly Time to Tackle, um, which is an initiative up in Scotland, which just gets people together to, to play some five-a-side football and, and just talk. Um, and, and have like a support unit around them of, of people who are like-minded and... I may just need some some help and support. And what was 
interested and resonated, I think, with with us was he was 28 years old, which is the same age as me. He played football and, and had a normal sort of upbringing like, like we have. And any one of us probably could have went through what he did. And for us, we thought it was important to, to spread his message because not only does he just talk about um, the, the troubles that he had, but also how he recovered from that, how he went through that and what he's doing now to, to keep that under control. So I think there's an important message in there. We didn't want him to just come on and regurgitate a, a sad story. We, we wanted people to hear how he got through that and what coping mechanisms he used and what he's doing now to keep it under control. So um, a very important message and, and one thoroughly enjoyed speaking to him about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the, the really important things to reiterate is that you know, it can happen to anyone and, and, and Aaron's a, a prime example of, of how, you know, anyone can have that sort of thing happen to them and how we'll come out on the other side. Every episode we have a theme and you can stop attacking your own children and give everybody the theme for this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the theme for this episode would be uh, worthlessness, uh, we've got suicide and we've got the road to recovery. As Ryan touched on before, that road to recovery was, um, it's still ongoing for, for Aaron, but it's one that was really, really heartwarming um, to hear. And I think I might have mentioned it in the, in our group um, that some of the story I see brought a bit of a tear to my eye. But um, yeah, it was, uh, so those are the kind of themes that we've got this in this episode and the story is well worth listening to. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're probably not the only one who welled up a little bit during that interview. It was it was incredibly moving. Katie, you obviously run Men Too, which is a was born out of a a, a desire to to try and tackle male suicide. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason that Men Too exists is a little over twelve months ago, a friend of mine who was male, um, seemingly happy, had a you know, a, a good lifestyle. He was studying at uni. Um, I was on Facebook and noticed that there was a lot of condolence messages to him. And, like, first of all, it was absolutely shocking to see that um, he's actually taken his own life. Nobody knew he was suffering from depression, um, mental health, other problems as well. But, yeah, he took his own life. So I kind of wanted to know why somebody from the outside who looked like they had you know things in the right place and really happy healthy lifestyle why they would choose to to do this to themselves ask the question on social media and the response was absolutely overwhelming because people wanted to know the same answers because everybody had been touched by knowing somebody male who had committed suicide or attempted suicide so that kind of led then to doing a bit of research into um, the current climate for males and that's when the Men Too campaign was born which was to create awareness that three out of four suicides in the UK male, 18 men a day take their own lives and it's the biggest killer in men under the age of 45 so we've since mobilised over 3,000 people wearing merchandise that says Men Too Army. You know, we're, we feel we're an army now because there's so many of us. 
um, to just mobilise support and awareness for male mental health vulnerabilities, really, to, to communicate to people who don't know that there is a, you know, an epidemic with male mental health at the moment. So sit back and give Aaron's story a listen. Um, just want to kind of start off with what was your relationship with football in general like before you started playing? Um, I mean, I can barely remember not playing. Uh, like most young boys, um, I wanted to play football from from the moment I could get up and run around. Um, I came from a big footballing family, you know, a massive Celtic family. Um, my uncles and stuff used to go to games and I, I was being taken to games from a young age. So football was always, always in my life from a young age. And I think from... You know, early primary school years, I can remember playing my first game at five or six years old and and seven aside teams at that time. I think I say it quite often, but football was probably my first love. Um, and that's been all through my life. I've had my difficult moments in it, of course, but my early memories of football are just that it, it was always a staple point in my life. It was always there and everyone around me loved it. So I just grew up to love it. And your football career started at Air United? Yeah, uh, you came through the youth setup there. Uh, talk us through that time coming through that youth setup. Well, I think I initially was actually came through the youth setup at Hibs, um, and I went full time at fifteen, uh, and I moved away from home at fifteen years old. I left school, um, and I signed a three year contract and moved away to Edinburgh, which was about forty five miles away. But you know, fifteen years old, moving away from home was really difficult. And it, it didn't it didn't work out as I'd hoped, and we'll probably speak more about this later. But you know that's when I, that's looking back now. That's probably when I first really struggled with my mental health. Albeit I didn't know what it was that back then, but you know I just real I had real anxiety and stuff. And about four or five months into my three year contract, I just decided that I couldn't I couldn't do this anymore. You know I was avoiding training and. I was just really struggling at that point, so I cancelled my contract, um, and that's when I then joined Air United. I took a time out, time out of football at that point, you know, because it was mid-season. Um, I took maybe five or six months out, um, and then I joined Air United when I was seventeen, and that was first year under nineteens at that point, and I had a really good season under nineteens, um, and I was enjoying it, and. The anxieties and stuff I'd been experiencing while being full time at Hibs weren't really there. My first season, we were full time at Air and we were doing like a college course as well, like a football performance coaching type of course thing. Yeah. So we were doing, we were training in the morning, then we were in the in the classroom in the afternoon, and it was a real good bunch of boys. And I still talk to a lot of them now, you know, ten, eleven years on, and uh, I loved that first season. Um, my second season in the nineteens is when I started training with the first team. Uh, and I sort of broke into the first team in the January of my second season. Um, I made a few appearances in January, and then I fell out. I fell away from the first team for a period of time because they were fighting a relegation battle, so I didn't really play a lot. And then I played in the last day of the season. I came on and uh, missed a chance, and we got relegated. And all that anxiety and everything that I'd been suffering at Hibs, all of that came flooding back at that point. Was there anyone around you? at that time when you you know that you could go to when you, you missed that chance as you said you know I imagine that would have played for your mind for for quite a few weeks afterwards was there anyone around <laughs> to, you could talk uh, to I don't think I understood what was going on you know 
I was, I should have been happier. At, you know, when I when I'd broken into the first team and I'd played, in I think I made my debut in a Scottish Cup tie at home to Brecon, and uh and then I played against Ross County and Dundee in the league and stuff. And this was like Championship in Scotland at the time. You know, I should have been happier and I should have really kicked on, but for some reason you know, my mindset was different and it started to feel like a, not a chore, but it did, I, I lost the love of it. I lost the enjoyment at that point. And, and then, as I say, when we got relegated at the end of that season, <coughs> I found that really difficult. But I didn't understand fully what was going on, so I wouldn't have known how to articulate it and speak to someone. And then, looking back now, anyway, when I look at that, the, the environment that I was in, you know, the players and stuff that were in the change room at the time, the manager, their livelihoods were at stake. You know, people were losing losing a lot of money and stuff, going through a really difficult time, especially when relegation came. You know, the club switched from full time to part time as well. So, mm. I think it would. It just it was it was the it was a recipe it was a recipe for disaster for me probably, and it would have been really difficult. I think to to speak to people about it. Yeah, we've we've come across that a, a couple of times actually speaking to a few. Uh, ex-footballers how they went through periods of time when football wasn't really um, enjoyable anymore and it was quite a, a journey yeah. for them to get back to, to actually loving the game um, Yeah, I think that, that that's what I lost you know, when, when I started playing professionally you know, when, when we came back my third season here, you know, I was in the first team at the start of the season and I came back and I started, I'd done really well in the early part of the season again and uh, but I still just mentally, and I don't know what it was or why this happened to me, but I just wasn't mentally strong enough to cope or, or to deal with it, to deal with the pressures of it at that point. I think a lot of it, I, I felt like I was underachieving as well. Like I had worked so hard my full life. I put this external pressure on myself or what I perceived to be external pressure because my family had given up a lot of commitment to me and stuff, taking me all around the country as a young boy. And at that point, I was playing League One football and I was in and out of the team. And, you know, we all have that dream of being the millionaire footballer playing at the top of the, at the, at the game. And that's, that's not, yeah, and, and that's not what, that's not what transpired for me. And because I didn't adapt properly, you know, I didn't adapt to my life. I didn't adapt to my expectations. I just mentally beat myself up for that, um, which meant that. I felt like I was underachieving and, and it just took me down a path of hating football hating myself a lot for it and it probably took away from my career a little bit um, and I lost the enjoyment and it's the one thing it took me years to get that back and that kind of like loss of enjoyment did that have anything to do was that sorry was that kind of the reason why you sort of moved between quite a lot of clubs during your career yeah I mean I think when I, f- I fell out of the professional game at the end of my third season at Air, you know, it just I knew I knew probably from about December of that season that I wasn't go- I wasn't going to be offered a new deal. I think I just could tell, and rather than go away and work harder or try and prove a point, you know, I done the felt sorry for myself, and again, that self loathing, that sort of self hate, that sort of feeling like I'd not achieved what I should have achieved, all of that going round like a hamster wheel just continually telling myself that so I, I left there at the end of the season and that's when I dropped to the non-leagues 
And I think the reason for my, you know, my first couple of seasons in non-league football, I was a kid. I was 20 years old and I was playing every week. Mm. And it was, I, I, again, I, I just didn't enjoy it. I wasn't enjoying it. And I was still turning up and playing, but I didn't, I didn't go because I wanted to anymore. I, I went because I had to, almost like I was being paid to. And yeah, football just wasn't the same in the early part of that until about two... 2013, you know, probably my third or fourth season in non-league football, I did a really good spell with a team called Glenathan. I had a really good couple of seasons. But then the end of my time there was when I was first diagnosed with depression. So that's that then brought its own problems. And then my football career since then has been ups and downs and all of that has been tied and It's all been tied into how I've been coping or not coping mentally. And that diagnosis with depression, um, when that comes about, obviously you, you're probably more inclined to tell like family members and and, and yeah. like, were you able to tell the people that you were playing for? Well, you, I didn't tell anyone initially. So, 2014 was uh, it was about March 2014. My wife, my fiance time, but now wife, she was pregnant. With our wee boy, um, oh no, it was two thousand fifteen, uh, March two thousand fifteen. Sorry, and uh, uh, she was pregnant with our wee boy, um, and she was working twelve hour shifts. She's a nurse, and I'd spent, I don't know how long. I, I ended up off work at this point for four months in total. I think it was or five months in total. But I'd, for a, for a few weeks, I'd spent lying on the couch every day and I mean the only the only time I would move would be to walk downstairs from my bed to the couch and then I would lie on the couch and then my wife would go out and she would work for 12 hours and she would come home and I would still be lying in the same spot Um, and she eventually you know from her medical background understood that something was going on uh, and she told me that I had to go to a doctor basically and at that time, I told the football club I was injured. Now there was no injury. Um, um, I just told them that I'd done something. I think I told them there was something going wrong with me. I'd had knee issues anyway, so I said that, and I didn't go to training for a number for a number of weeks. And the manager chased me consistently, and I just kept putting it off. But eventually, I seen a doctor, uh, and I got the diagnosis of depression, and I was uh, given sertraline, which is an antidepressant. And I came out the doctor's that day thinking you know, naively thinking that's perfect. I've, you know, I'm now diagnosed with something. I've got the tablets. I'll be fine. Everything will be great. Um, and it didn't work out like that. I think I spent another three months off work really struggling. But <clears throat> back to your point of speaking and who did I tell? We didn't tell anyone. I didn't speak to speak about to anyone other than my wife. But one Saturday... Um, our game got called off and we got asked to come in for training and I'd been to football maybe five or six weeks at this point uh, and I went down and I was there early and the manager shouted me into his office and as soon as I stepped foot in that office and his, he said to me like, what's, what's actually going on and I just broke down and it's the first time I'd ever spoken to anyone about what, what had been going on um, and the manager and the assistant at that time and I didn't know this at the time, but they both worked in sort of mental health care. They both had mental health backgrounds. The assistant manager specifically uh, had had loads of his own struggles, and I now actually do a lot of work with him, you know, a, a years down the line. But 
that was the first time I'd ever spoken to anyone about it. And I was in floods of tears in the manager's office. And the assistant manager cuddled me and just told me, look, told me he'd been there, told me a bit about his story. And that was a weight off my shoulders. And it was the first time that I'd felt like someone understood me a little bit. I can imagine. And now, <laughs> and now you know, five years on, I, I still, I was actually at a mental health course in October last year and uh, I met Craig, the assistant manager of that time, and we were on the same course and he's now helped me set up some of the groups and stuff that we run and we now do some work together. Um, but yeah, that I didn't, even then, it still took me a long time to speak to family even after that moment, but at least then, you know, I understood that I had support from some people in my life who mattered my wife and some people at the football club. I think that that's really uh, really quite an amazing story really um you've got you know you're, you're playing football at a club and you feel like you know there's a big roadblock in your way where you can't go and tell anyone and the person that you can tell is you know the the guy who's telling you what to do in a, in a game every Saturday so yeah I think you know I think I've spoken about it a few things but I mean how often and this was my mindset at the time, but how often have you criticized a football player for having a bad knee or being injury prone or you know, what or a player who does his hamstring, you know, you criticize them for it, it's natural. Managers criticise players for being injured. Yeah. And if we're criticizing players for being physically injured, something that's out of their control, then it makes it really even more difficult to approach the situation around by the way, I'm physically fine but mentally I don't feel great. It's a really hard thing to talk about because you know, I've had my own share of injury problems. Managers have got frustrated with me, you know, for, like I say, pulling hamstrings. Uh, I had issues with my knee, managers got frustrated. So it's so difficult to then go to a manager and say, by the way, mentally I'm not feeling great. It's, it's a really difficult thing to bridge. But I was fortunate that when I first when I spoke to my first manager about it, you know, he was really understanding because of his background and the assistant manager's background. Other clubs I've been at, because I speak openly about it now, you know, I always get that extra bit of support. I think that's probably because society's changing a bit as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's funny that you say about the injuries. I think, you know, we've seen, you know, even like, you know, top-level players, you know, Michael Owen is probably the one I remember the most having been criticised for hamstring injuries, but no one think anyone really realised that he'd been playing football since he was 16 and hadn't stopped. Yeah. You know, it must be really difficult just with an injury, let alone being able to not really quite explain it and show people what it is. I think that was the thing for me as well. I was always worried, and I still to this day worry about it sometimes, that, you know, people will treat me differently or managers will think his mind's not quite right or something's not quite right. Like, they'll always be in the back of their minds because they understand what I've been through. That there'll there'll always be something there that they maybe worry about playing me or or using me as often as they they would have if they didn't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. always have that worry that they would I'll just be treated that wee bit differently because they know what's happened to me. Mate, but that's quite a lot. I mean, I, I, my similar experience in in school and and kind of developing into my teenage years was very similar. I I, mm-hmm. I was diagnosed with OCD when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And I currently take surgery at the moment. Um, yeah. and I had quite bad anxiety when I was a teenager, but again, I don't realize that's what it was. I think I just assumed everybody felt like this, and this was just normal. And I remember getting to my late teens and early twenties and kind of realizing 
other people don't have the same worries that I'm having. This there's obviously not something quite right here with this. Um, yeah. And I think for a lot of people, as you say, I think I was kind of very. I'm right, and answer probably the test is I'm very extrovert. I'm quite loud and, and often the, the sort of centre of attention. But again, yeah. a lot of that can mask kind of how people are really feeling a, a lot of the time. And I think, as you say, looking back, especially at your teenage years, you're not really sure of your own emotions. It can all be very alien to you. And, and I think it's really important to highlight that just because people are behaving in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly how they're feeling underneath. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, people... I see it quite often now in the work that I do, but often the loudest in the room when we're at our groups and stuff is usually the one who's got things going on in the background and I always worry about someone being loud or being extroverted in that sort of way. Um, I wasn't really like that growing up. You know, I was always pretty deep. In fact, I always remember one school teacher telling me I was as deep as the blue sea, you know, <laughs> because I was, just, I was just always thinking and I was my, my mind was non-stop. I was always thinking about something. I was always analysing my life and I mean from a young age like I came from a my family family life was fine you know there was nothing extra really traumatic or anything but you know I found out quite a young age that the the guy who was my dad wasn't my real dad so you know all of my siblings had a different dad from me and they didn't know until we got older um so I always felt kind of like the outcast at home and I think that probably played a part in it Mm. Um, so I was always I had that sort of dynamic going on throughout school as well and I couldn't like it was the big secret of the family and things and I was sort of carrying that weight while also always felt pressure and I'm not saying that the family put pressure on me but I always felt that pressure of trying to trying to be the footballer you know growing up we weren't poor but we weren't well off by any stretch of imagination um, I always felt like football would be my way out of the scheme almost um yeah and you yeah. feel like you can take your family on that journey and i think all of that together it just wasn't a good mix for my mind and i just didn't have the strength at that point or the understanding of it to to prioritize and to rearrange my mind a little bit and it just you know manifested in the way that it did yeah absolutely and then you wrote in one of your um in in your in your uh, your pin tweet that you did, which is kind of a bit of a, a kind of backtrack of your, of your story, um, yeah. that you tend maybe a little bit older, your anxiety had kind of turned into a bit of self-loathing, perhaps, but not yeah. becoming a, a professional footballer. What, what 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 was that time in your life like? I mean, that that's probably most of my twenties. So I'm twenty eight, twenty eight now, soon to be twenty nine. But most of my twenties, and we spoke about it, you know, moving around clubs a lot. A lot of that was driven just through pure, I don't want to use the word hatred, that's maybe a bit strong, but yeah, it, I absolutely hated the fact that I didn't play professional football and I didn't, and it wasn't that I regretted or that I was blaming it anyone else or, you know, I blamed purely myself, like it wasn't, oh, I didn't get a chance, it was always you weren't good enough and that is your fault and you didn't do this well enough, you didn't do that well enough. It was like a continual self-critical putting myself down all the time. And even at times when football was going well for me and I, I had I was doing well, I would always, at the back of my mind, go, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not at a good level and things like that. And and then the reality is, like I, I played at a decent level and 
it's maybe not where I first seen my life when I was seven, eight years old and I used to dream about, you know, running out in front of 60,000 at Celtic Park, but it's a, it's a game of football and I, I lost it. I lost the ability to enjoy it because it just became, I was playing just because I, because I think I was probably just playing, going through the motions because I was just, I hated it. I hated it for so long and it's hard to say that now because I love football, but I just hated playing it because I just put myself down all the time. And that's what that was my probably my whole twenties up until I went into hospital last year. You know, five or six years, maybe longer, of just turning up playing football and never really fully enjoying it because I, I had this skewed imagination in my mind that I was going to go a lot further than I eventually did. I think your um, I think your feelings of kind of self loathing and self criticism and stuff are probably ones that will resonate with some people and some people will probably be in the same boat but won't realise that they're doing it. I think, you know, that there's, there's there's a lot of people who put a lot of pressure on themselves and it's it's incredibly difficult, isn't it, when you're in that mindset to kind of work around them because you always expect yourself to do so much and if you don't hit those, you know, kind of almost unrealistic expectations, then it's very difficult to climb down from it. Yeah, I think it's not, it's, it's natural for us as humans and, and yet, I think you see a lot of it online and stuff as well. Now we're always comparing ourselves to each other as well, and I've done a lot of that. Like I, I remember, like a lot of envy probably towards boys who I played with growing up, who are now going and having good careers. And I've done a lot of, you know, comparison and looking at them, saying how could they do it and I couldn't do it. I was better than them at such and such an age. And you know what? Everyone does it. it football can be toxic in that way. Like a lot of players think that they should have gone done better than they did and it just ruined it for me it ruined football for me for a long time and uh, like I say self-loathing is the best way that I can describe it but it was many many years of that and even when things were going well there was always that little niggling thing in my mind telling me well you know you're playing in front of 50 people it's none of this means anything mm-hmm. you're not good enough and you mentioned there, um, around sort of 12 months ago or so, you attempted to take your own life. And obviously that must have been you know, a really dark time, which you've spoken quite openly about. Yeah. Kind of talk us through the, the months leading up to that day. Yeah, I think... So in 2017, you know, prior to all of this, I didn't have a suicide attempt, but I came very close. And that was the first time that I'd ever been taken to hospital. And... Uh, I don't really talk about that one often, but from that point, you know, after I came came round from that episode, I feel like I decided that I was going to make a change in my life, and I used work. Uh, I used work as my my go to. It was my thing to to keep me going. So I started working like I mean, like crazy. I mean, for from the summer of two thousand seventeen right up until April last year you know almost two years I was working 15 hours a day you know five six days a week and it brought me success and I got a few promotions and I was really lauded within the business and things were going really well in my professional career but as someone with a mental with a mental illness you know I was just masking we spoke about it earlier but I was masking my feelings by just working and telling myself that if I can be successful at work then no one will know what's going on no one will know how I actually feel and also 
everyone will think everything's fine and everything will end up fine. I always thought, you know, that silly again, like materially, if we're doing well, if, if we have a house, we've got a car, we're going on holidays. Like if we if we keep if I keep doing all that stuff, eventually I'll feel better. Just naive again, not actually working at my mindset, just trying to see how it played out by again just using work. Um, and it took its toll on me, and it, like it would anyone, you know, working that amount. Eventually, just it broke me down physically, it broke me down mentally, and it broke me down emotionally. Um, you know, I was physically exhausted for a long time before April last year. Yeah, I was really struggling. I was staying, I was staying away from home a lot, staying in hotels, spending a lot of time alone, which, for myself and for a lot of people, with sort of depression, anxiety, and things like that, like isolation is the worst thing you can do. Loneliness plays a real part in my mood. Uh, I need to be around and engaging with people and. That makes this lockdown so difficult, I think, for some people, is that feeling lonely. So I think it's massive that we continue to engage. But I put so much energy and effort into my work that I just was exhausted. Mentally, I was so drained. And it, it all just, again, another recipe for disaster. But it just came to a head. I wasn't feeling good for a week period of time. You know, my depression is always coming gone I, I go through what i refer to as episodes where i'll have months where things are fine and then i can tell and i know when it's coming and i can feel i, I refer to it as my dark cloud and i can feel when it's about to rain and at this point you know in april last year i just didn't put the umbrella up i didn't use all the coping mechanisms and all the tools and everything that i knew and i'd worked on over the years and I call it my toolbox, but I've got a toolbox and I know what I can use to help me. And I just didn't do it. And I stopped going to football, which was massive for me again. You know, I stopped going to football because as much as I've spoken about, you know, not enjoying football for a period of time, it's always been there. And I've always went a few nights a week and I've always went on a Saturday. So I've always had that routine. I stopped that for a period of time because I was just working a lot. Um, my wife went in for an operation in early April last year, so she was bedbound for two or three weeks. Um, and in my mind, I felt like because she wasn't feeling good and she'd had the trauma of an operation, I couldn't speak to her because my support, she's my support, at, she's the base level of my support network. So I broke that support network at you know, base level, because I didn't speak to her and that's the first thing I would usually do or she would usually pick up on it and we would speak about it. But, you know, with Siobhan being not well at the time, I didn't speak and I didn't I didn't talk to anyone. Um, I didn't go to the doctor, I didn't do anything like that. I just knew, I knew in my mind it wasn't, I wasn't feeling great, but I just thought, look, I'll, I'll just keep working and I'll work my way out of this. And it, it didn't happen. A couple of weeks of not feeling good, my mood deteriorating day on day um, I was staying in a hotel in Edinburgh at the time because I was working so much and just lonely I wasn't seeing my wee boy wasn't seeing my wife so emotionally I was all over the place you know I wasn't getting that engagement with my family that I probably that I probably need and uh, I just made the decision you know the self-loathing came back everything all of that the usual stuff that I, I go through in my life, that all came back and started to hate myself, started to, this is where the mind becomes such a powerful thing, but it convinced myself that I was a burden and that I think 
the main thoughts that were going through my head were, you know, how can Everton be going so well, or at least being perceived to be going so well, yet I still feel like this. Like, I've worked hard, I've, I'm doing well, I'm, I'm having the success at work. How can I still feel like this? This isn't fair, pretty much. Was how I was feeling. Um, if it's if it's going to always be like this, then I don't want a life like this anymore. And that was that was my decision took me. I felt like my wife and my wee boy would be better off if I wasn't here, because no matter what I done, I always ended up back in this dark place. No matter what I changed in my life and what I done in my life, I always ended up back here. So I made the decision after a. I don't know, a few days maybe of contemplating it, the suicidal thoughts. I just decided that was me. That Friday morning, I decided that was me. I was going to finish my working day and then I was going to commit suicide that night. And, uh, sorry. Um, and I felt relieved. And I'm getting upset saying that because it's uh, a hard thing to say and it's a hard thing to hear because I, when I made the decision I was going to do it I felt relieved I felt relieved that it was going to be my last day and that I wouldn't have this pain anymore and sitting here almost a year on like I feel shame for saying that because but that's just what your mind can do to you if you, if you don't if you don't deal with it if you don't do the right things and if you don't talk but I made that decision and I left work and I, you know I went the night out I had a few beers, nothing crazy. I'd already made my, I'd already knew what I was doing, so I'd, I had a few beers, and then I think I've, I've spoke about it before, but I've had suicidal thoughts throughout a lot of my adult life. So I've always had plans. I've always sort of had three or four plans. I've always made plans just through my suicidal thoughts. So I knew what I was going to do, and mine was to walk out in front of a train. That was my plan. Um, so I took myself to a train station and I tried to walk in front of a train and I couldn't. And don't like I don't know what it was. I've spoken about it before, obviously, but for some reason, something happened in my mind, something happened in my brain, I don't know. But it was like my wee boy was shouting at me. I just heard Daddy and I genuinely, for a second, probably believed he was there. And that was just enough to stop me from walking out. It didn't take the feeling away, didn't take the thoughts away, of course it didn't. All of that still had to come, but it was enough to just stop me in that moment. Uh, and then, what, what were the sort of the sort of hours and, and days after that moment like? The hours after, you know, I'd sent my wife a message basically saying that I was done. So I was reporting missing and vulnerable straight away. Um, so I went to the Prince's Street uh, which is like the main street in Edinburgh and there's night buses that go between Edinburgh and Glasgow and stuff so I think I've done that journey I've done the Edinburgh and Glasgow journey about three times on a bus uh, it's about six or seven hours on a bus something along those lines just going back and forward because I did, honestly I was in a trance of some sort like I didn't know what I was doing anymore. I was just trying to stay safe. I had basically made the decision that if I was in public, I couldn't harm myself because I didn't trust myself at this point. And like I say, the thoughts weren't away. All I 
there was just now this thing of me saying this isn't fair, pretty much not fair on my son, not fair on my wife. Um, I eventually got, I was in Glasgow, um, it was maybe about eight in the morning or something. I was in Glasgow and I looked at Buchanan bus station and I looked up at the, to see where the next buses were going and I eventually jumped on a bus to Aberdeen and I spent, I don't know how long in Aberdeen, I couldn't even tell you. But a few hours anyway, just sort of sitting, contemplating, going over my life, trying to understand what had brought me to this point, to feeling like this. Um, and then eventually got a bus home from Aberdeen. And I think I think it was on the bus, someone, because I'd been reported missing, it was now like nationwide on the news and stuff, it was all over social media and things like that. Um. I think someone on the bus spotted me and called called it into the police. And as soon as the bus pulled up in Glasgow, I was uh, I stepped off the bus and the police handcuffed me. And they took me to hospital. And then I spent hours upon hours in accident and emergency. Eventually seen the mental health crisis team. And I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act for 28 days and taken to a psychiatric unit. And that's that's where the that's where the real recovery began for the first time in my life. I uh, think um, I think a lot of people will will have obviously come across the um, the process of someone being uh, being sectioned under the Mental Health Act and, and taken to a psychiatric unit. What's what's that actually like? I don't know. Somebody going through it. Uh, initially. You know, I can't struggle to remember going in straight away. Like they took me in. It must have been. I think it was the early hours of the Sunday morning. By this point, when I eventually got to the to the unit, and you're, I mean, you're assessed by about four or five different people. So I, I was assessed in any, then assessed by a crisis team. You know, you're having to tell everyone how you're feeling. It's draining. Um, I was obviously in shock. Like there was a traumatic experience. What had just happened to me, like the hours leading up to this point, you know, the 24, 48 hours over that weekend were so traumatic. I get to the psychiatric unit, I was then assessed by two separate doctors there, and then they make the decision to keep you in, and they just they put you in a room and stuff like that. So I got my room. Uh, I think they stationed a couple of nurses outside my room in the first night, but they basically just gave me that, like, loads of diazepam, so I would just sleep for the first night. Um, and then when I woke up on the Sunday, I was very groggy, but uh, I always remember this, for the, the first week or so, I just kept threatening to run away. Yeah, I kept, it was just what I wanted to, as I said, my mindset hadn't changed, my, all the thoughts were still there. And this was, I'd seen my wife, I'd, by this point obviously, I'd seen some family and stuff at this point, but I still, the thoughts were still the exact same, I hadn't done any work in that yet. Um, so I kept threatening to run, and what they do is they they get nurses to follow you around pretty much. So I I was being followed around by two people, and then eventually they made the decision. I think it was on day one or day two, I can't remember, but they put me into the the high dependency unit, which is basically a locked ward, not too dissimilar to a prison pretty much, where you can only go to bed when they let you go to bed. You only eat when at meal times, things like that. You know, you could the staff ratio is almost one per patient. Everything's locked down. You can only use a certain day. You can only use the day room during the day at 
you don't I don't get outside you used to, you could go out the back if you were a smoker. There was certain times they would let you out to smoke. I didn't smoke, so I wouldn't go. So I think for twelve or thirteen days, I didn't see outside. You were allowed a visitor for one hour a day. So I, my wife would come down every day and bring my wee boy sometimes. But that was all I seen for two weeks, and every day you're obviously engaging with nursing staff and all that sort of stuff. I'd been put on new tablets at that point seeing the doctor a couple of times a week, seeing psychiatrists. But it's really difficult. Is it it's a really, really difficult environment because there's a lot of really sick people there. And I just remember thinking, I don't belong here. Like I don't want to be here. It almost set me back because I was like, if if this is where my life has come to it, I don't want this anymore. Um and then about twelve days in, you know, I'd, I'd probably started to settle by this point. And the doctor came to me, you know, they review you almost every day, but they, they came to me and said, look, we're going to let you go outside because we think they'd spoken to my wife on the phone as well and I think they'd seen signs of improvement. Uh, we're going to let you go outside because we think you need it. We think you need a little break. Uh, we're going to give you 15 minutes. Just please don't run away. And that was the point. That was the, the moment that probably changed my life was getting outside and go. It was mid-May by this point, and uh, I just remember the sun shining. And I remember hearing traffic for the first time, and just things like that, and just being like, I don't remember my exact words to myself, but I pretty much was just like, this is, I need to make changes. I need to start dealing with this better. I, I need to start coping with this better. And then on the the Saturday, I suppose I've been two weeks into my stay now, um, I was allowed outside with my wife and my wee boy for a full hour. And my wee boy, and this will tie it back quite nicely, but I think my wife told my wee boy that daddy was getting outside to play today. And my wee boy said, we better take a ball then. <laughs> I'm going to cry again. <laughs> I'm going to cry again. But, uh, and there's a really amazing picture. And I think it's on that Twitter thread that's my pinned tweet. There's a picture of me and my wee boy chasing after a ball. Yeah, absolutely. Both wearing almost the exact same outfit, and we're both wearing almost the exact same pose as we chase it. But that <laughs> that picture's taken in the grounds of a psychiatric hospital on the first time I was allowed outside to play with him. And I think I look back at that day, and I look back at that picture quite often, just as a wee reminder of, firstly, you know, I'm very proud of how far I've come, but secondly, just that I don't ever want to end up back there again. And I tell you what, I don't, I wouldn't wish it on anyone either. So you said that was kind of that sort of period as the you would say sort of the start of your recovery period, which is obviously yeah. you know, we're sort of twelve months on and it's obviously ongoing all the time. And I think one of the things that we've spoken about doing these podcasts is that there's no sort of fix or cure for, for mental illness. It's something that has to be maintained all the time and something that has to be you know, you have to be active in maintaining it. What was your recovery process like? Um so I think, you know, after that day, I, I still had two and a bit weeks in hospital after that. Uh, they moved me out of the locked ward and they put me into a, a more open ward. And uh, I started exercising a lot. So I think I was allowed out three or four times a day or so. I think I was allowed out for half an hour or something at a time. So I would get up in the morning, I'd go a morning walk. It was just about starting to introduce routine to my life. I'd go a morning walk, I'd get breakfast. Uh I'd maybe do some reading or listen to something. Um, I'd go another walk at lunchtime, get my lunch, 
go for a lie down. I was always really tired because of all the med- all the medication. You know, I was still on uh, diazepam every day at that point, so I was really groggy a lot. Um, and then between lunch and dinner, I would go a run. So I started running every day. There was, it was actually quite a nice bit around the hospital. Um, quite a nice place to, to spend time. And the weather was nice for most days. So I started running 5K every day for the, the last two weeks in my hospital stay. So getting that exercise again really started to make a difference. I had a wee ball, a football, um, that I had for my whole time. I'd spend a lot of time playing with that in my room, just doing keepy ups and things like that. And because I was allowed out a few times, Times a day, my wife and family and friends would come down and visit me a lot more often. And I think I'd had a real epiphany almost. You know, those two moments that I spoke about getting outside for the first time and then getting with my boy for the first time, like playing, running around, gave me an epiphany. It gave me, gave me a real sense of gratitude. And it felt like I had a second attempt at life. So my uh, recovery process was ongoing. I think I left hospital and the first thing we'd done was we booked a holiday. I got out of hospital on the Friday and we, we went to Cyprus on the Sunday for a week because I don't think I wasn't quite ready for normal life yet. You know, I still, mm. I felt like I still wanted a break because it was overbearing. You know, people wanted to come and see me and things like that and I don't want to sound like I'm ungrateful for that. Of course I am, but we just felt like we needed time to reconnect as a family. So we went away for a week and got some more sunshine. And then when I came back from holiday, you know, I picked up my psychology, um, would do what with the crisis team, things like that. I was taking, I was obviously starting new medications, I was doing that, and it was about slowly, you know, recovering, starting to, to introduce myself back to normal life. You know, started to introduce routine into my life. I was training, I was exercising a lot at that point. You know, I went into hospital at 14 stone and I came out 12 stone three. Um, and I maintained that uh, very quickly went into pre-season assigned for a new club um, went into pre-season training and for spoke a lot this I spoke about football negatively a lot but decided that I was going to play football for the love of playing it assigned for a new club and I started just loving it I was enjoying it I was loving going to training I was loving playing um, and I was doing a lot of speaking about it, doing a lot of things like this, because I'd been open throughout my whole time in hospital and things like that. I'd spoken about it really openly on Twitter. I was on radio and I was in papers and stuff like that. So I was doing a lot of work. I was speaking to a lot of people and I was engaging with a lot of people every day and sort of stumbled across, you know, a, a, a life that I liked and I stumbled across something that I felt like I was good at. I was, I was good at speaking about my story I think I was good at connecting with people, all this stuff that I didn't understand about myself. And I really started to love helping people. And and that helped me, speaking to people about it every day, you know, trying to... I hate the, the phrase mental health advocate and stuff like that. I see it plastered over social media. But, you know, that almost that in a way, just sort of trying to help others and help myself in the process. Mm. Um, And that's been massive through my recovery and ongoing recovery is just that, you know, having that ability to to speak openly and honestly about it. But I've made some really amazing connections over the last year just through the mental health work. And it helps me it helps me massively. I think uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Adam, with you know, you're saying you're sort of helping yourself and helping others at the same time. Our um first episode we spoke with a guy called Kevin who was a Hillsborough survivor and 
He's mm-hmm. recently just finished the course of CBT, uh, and he's only very recently started talking openly about his experiences. And one of the things that he spoke about was how it's been, how nice it's been for him for people to almost connect with him, having gone through similar things. Maybe they're a little bit further back in their process, and 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 Ryan talked about it as well with him in terms of being like a ripple process. You know, yeah. once you start to be able to heal yourself, you can then start to heal others and. I think that's the, the the bit most positive aspect that you can you can take out of it is when you start to talk and talk openly and talk with other people you can you can have that impact on people's lives. Yeah, I think absolutely spot on. And for me, you know, I've had countless messages of things people message me saying I heard you on this podcast or I read this interview with you or, or whatever it may be, but like people genuinely saying like this helped me understand my feelings and I've now went to the doctor and things like that and, or if it, even more extreme you know if people tell me that they felt they were feeling suicidal but hearing how I've how I've sort of worked through it and started to recover and how the changes I've made and how different my life is now you know how that's helped them get, get giving them a bit of strength and a bit of hope you know people giving me speaking to me in that way it blows my mind still at times, you know, to think of the impact you can have on people, and it's why I like to do it. Because if, like I said at the start, if one person hears this and says, "Well, if he can do it, then then I can do it," then yeah. I, I've made a positive impact. And I look at Tyson Fury a lot, and he's been a a big uh, inspiration of mine. You know, has come back if you like from his mental health issues, but. I think he says, you know, he wanted to become heavyweight champion in the world again because he wanted to show people that if he can do that, then you can do anything. And I think it's just a really positive message of hope that, and trust me, you know, from where I was a year ago to today, if you told me a year ago that I'd be sitting here today doing a, another podcast speaking about my mental health, I would have told you there was absolutely no chance because I didn't see a way out, but there is a way out. And I think that's the, that's the key. Um, just sort of staying on that feature then, Aaron, um, looking at our research, there is obviously a lot more awareness around and openness around mental health at the moment. It's probably not where it needs to be, but it's certainly heading in the right direction. And there seems to be some good initiatives up in Scotland, but obviously that's very much outside looking in for us. Would you say that's yep. true? Is there some good stuff going on up there? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think if I look back at, you know, five years ago or so when I was first diagnosed and now the difference in that and that's a relatively short period of time the difference is massive um, and it it, it is getting it's moving in the right direction you know people are doing a lot of work there's some amazing people out there like I said I've made some amazing connections over the last year but there's some people just doing amazing things you know running initiatives running support groups you know getting people help I've heard some amazing stories over over the last year or so and it, it, doing the sort of work that we are trying to do and it's fantastic to see and long may continue, you know, people going out their way to make sure that others are okay, you know, it's, it's really heartwarming and there's a real sense of togetherness and community around the initiatives in Scotland, you know, specifically if I look at the football ones and stuff like that, like we all, there's a real community vibe to it, we all sort of speak, we all, we've all gotten to know each other, we all you know, play We've all played charity games and stuff against each other, and there's other things in the pipeline. Uh, it's just great. It really warms my heart. 
No, that that's brilliant. That and we noticed once one when we retweeted that um, you were sort of coming on the show, we actually gained quite a few followers from Scotland. So with that yeah. in mind, you've yeah. talked about time to tackle the Yapper app, walk and talk. Can you just give us a bit of a background to those organisations in case anyone listening wants to get involved? Yeah, I'll do Yapper and walk and talk first, and then time to tackle is more than one. So I'll probably plug that okay. a bit more. But uh, Yapper uh, was that Yapper's a, a social media app. Um, not too dissimilar to Snapchat in its setup, but it, it's it's driven towards giving people a safe platform and environment to share their thoughts and feelings around mental health. So if they're not feeling great and things, you have the opportunity to put it on there, um, and people and people can get in touch with you. And I think it's going to be built out into, you know, you'll be able to access help on the app and things like that. Um, my involvement with Yappa is relatively small. Uh, Yappa help us in terms of the the working partnership with my football therapy group, Tank Metaco, and they've sponsored some kit and stuff for us. Um, Jack knows the guy who founded it, got in touch with me. I can't even remember when, maybe October, September, October time last year or something along those lines. Um, told me about the app. I was already aware of the app because I'd seen him on Twitter, but Jack's got his own sort of anxiety type anxiety problems in his own background um, it sort of led him to founding this app with Chris Kirkland the ex-England goalkeeper and I think what they're trying oh, to do wow. is fantastic um, I think they're trying to give people, we all love social media and we all love sharing their thoughts and feelings but I think we're all probably acutely aware that there's definitely a downside to social media I think we talked about comparison earlier, there's a real comparison culture I think we we all at times get caught up in the number of likes and the number of followers we have and things like that. Yapa yeah. have stripped all that out, so there's no follower count, there's no like count. There's no pictures on it either, so you can't really be shamed or, you know, all this photo shaming and things like that that goes on. So Yapa have really they've tried to take it back to the foundation of just people speaking and sharing thoughts and feelings and giving the opportunity that it's a safe environment and that you don't get too caught up and all the things that don't actually matter, like followers and like the number of likes you get. So I really liked that concept. And then, you know, when Jack offered that they could support our football group in a way, then it just made sense to go into partnership with them. Um, the Walk and Talk MMH, again, it's something that I'm not hugely involved in. I've put on a couple of walks for them in Scotland, but that was uh, a guy, Lee Adams, who was a Fulham fan um, from London. And, uh, Again, Lee's had his own journey with mental health over the last 10 years. And I think five years ago, Lee set up Walk and Talk. And it is what it says in the sentence, very simple, but he gets people out walking and tries to get them talking. I think the the idea behind it is if you're out walking with someone, it's a lot easier to speak than if you just sit down and sit people across the table and over coffee and things like that. It's, it can sometimes be quite intimidating and difficult to talk, but if you get out and you're walking, then people have the opportunity to talk, they have the opportunity to go and connect. Uh, what Lee does is he walks between football grounds. So I think he initially started walking from Craven Cottage to away, away games, or from away games back to Craven Cottage. Uh, I met Connected with Lee online and then I joined him. Uh, I'm weirdly uh, Fulham or my English team. I just fell in love with him at a young age. And the sort of Louis Aha, Louis Boamorty, Papa Bubadio, players like yeah. that. You know, I fell in love with that Fulham team randomly. I think John Collins had just left. That was maybe my tie to it, I'm not sure. 
Um, so connected with Lee, got talking to him, found out he was a film fan, and I said to my daughter, I've always wanted to go to Craven Cottage, would love to do it. And he told me about Walk and Talk, and we just got speaking, and I thought, that sounds fantastic. So I signed up on New Year's Eve this year. I said, promised him I would go down and do it. So on New Year, we walked from the Majeski Stadium in Reading to Craven Cottage for the match. So I think it was 44 miles, took us 16 and a half hours. Wow. Um, so we done that walk overnight. So that was my first walking talk, and I loved it. Honestly, it's such an empowering experience because it, I think I said this in my the video I done for Lee at the time, but it, it's like a little condensed version of life in sixteen and a half hours because you have the real highs and the mood's great, and then you go through times where it becomes really tough, like mentally and physically, it can be quite tough. And and then if you but if you say if you talk about it and you say, well, I'm struggling or whatever, people will slow down, people will help you, people will come and sit with you for a while and you can talk. And I We walked with some fantastic people, I think eight of us done it. I still speak to them all almost every day. Just some great people and it was a really, really powerful experience and I loved it. So after I finished it, I said to Lee, I think we can bring this to Scotland. And he was like, we'd love you to try it. So we've done a couple in Scotland now. We walked from... Livingston to Rangers, which is 33 miles. Um, so I think 14 of us finished it. Um, that was a storm, I can't remember, was it Storm Daniel? But it was a storm. Um, I've been Dennis. Uh, uh, but uh, by the time we got to Ibrooks, the game had been cancelled. That's how bad the weather was. <laughs> so we just walked overnight for 14 hours or something like that, 33 miles. Um, got to Ibrooks and the game got cancelled. <laughs> Oh, um, but again, fantastic. Another great group of people. Um, really enjoyed it. And then two and two and a half weeks later, we went again. You know, my idea is if we bring it north, then we need to get both halves of Glasgow and we can't be seen to just go and move on. Otherwise, you lose you lose a lot of following. So yeah, we walked from Celtic Park to Livingston. So we set off at three in the morning and walked to 31, 32 miles or whatever it is uh, through to Livingston from three in the morning all through the day we got there about six o'clock at night um and again i think 12 13 of us finished that walk something along those lines and again just another great bunch and like i said you just it's the opportunity to get out get people together you get people meeting each other you know said at the start football is a great vehicle for this football is great for getting people together but you get that real sense of community and camaraderie and it's just great and uh I just love, I love doing it, and hopefully, once everything calms down and football starts back up, we'll get another more, another few in the in the calendar. And, no, that's brilliant. And the final thing, uh, take me tackle. So, um, take me tackle is my my baby. That's um, that's uh, myself and my wife's initiative. So, as I said, I've spoken about football negatively a lot on this, but football, I love football. I absolutely love it. I love playing it. I love watching it. I love taking part, and so many others do too. Um, I think football's always been there in my life, even when I've not particularly enjoyed it. I've always went, and it's always probably given me an escape because when you cross the line and you know the balls come out, it, it's all you think about. You don't think about the problems. You don't think about the worries and stuff you've had in your life. Uh, as we spoke about earlier, you know the picture of me. Of you bringing the ball to me, I mean, you can play with dad when he's in hospital, like, that's how much football means to me, 
even throughout this lockdown for the last three and a half weeks or whatever, it's three weeks every single day. I spent an hour out the back with my son with a ball. Like it's just it's always my go to thing. So my our idea was how can we use football to help people and how can we use football to to make a difference and we came up with the idea of using football and we call it football therapy but basically what we do is we we give people we put on free football so people come along and we play five sides um for an hour and it's totally free and then we spend an hour in a room and i don't like the term support group because i think it puts people off a little bit but that's essentially what it is you know people come in it's a safe environment you know, no judgment, none of that. And if you've got things going on in your life, you or you need to get things off your chest. And it could be simple things. It could be that your wife's doing your head and your husband's doing your head and the kids have been particularly difficult this week and you just want to get it out and get it out of your mind. Because I think a lot of what's happened in my life is that I've kept everything in for too long and it manifests, it builds up and eventually it just implodes. I think if you speak about things and we and we open up about it, whatever the feelings are then we can make a real difference. So we, we give people the opportunity to come into the room and do that. And it, it, we keep it as laid back as we can. Got a fantastic group. I think, you know, where well, we were, had a group in Edinburgh and a group in Glasgow. I think we were about 50 other people each week attending our groups. We've got group chats and stuff on WhatsApp now, people checking in every day. We're doing Zoom calls every week uh, so that people can come and check in. But it's just... It's giving people an escape. It's giving people somewhere where they feel like they belong, where they have a purpose, um, where they get to play football and and play football for the love of playing football. Play football to smile and enjoy it, not play for the score or not care about how you perform or not care about ability or talent or anything like that. Just come and kick a ball and, and have fun. That's um, absolutely brilliant, though, mate. I think... Um, it's quite funny, really, because it, I'd probably get laughed at by Danny and I, because I always, every podcast we have, I always t- tend to say it's a vehicle for mental health. Uh, <laughs> and you've said it a few times today, but I think it yeah. sums it up really nicely because it can be a, a vehicle that causes sort of ill mental health, but equally it can be the vehicle that, that helps it and cures it as well. Not cures, but helps you go through whatever you're going through. So I think that's really nice that the people can turn up and they get the physical aspect of it, and then they get the hour at the end to to almost get the emotional element out of it as well. So you, you're covering both bases there, really, aren't you? Yeah, that and that was the idea. You know, we wanted... I've said it before, but, you know, we could have just made it football only. And I think that would help. Of course, that would help, you know, getting that hour of physical activity and that hour to take your mind off of things. But I think because we give the second hour, it just makes us a little bit, a little bit different, gives you that different aspect where you can come in and just have a chat and sometimes we'll just talk about what happened like the football games that happened at the weekend or whatever and sometimes it'll be a bit more you know a bit more deep and a bit more personal but just where people know that they have the opportunity and that they have the safe space to do that it can make such a big difference and you finding that you're seeing some people who attend regularly are like coming out of the skin as the weeks go by and opening up a little bit more and it just becomes easier and almost like a bit of a an, like a family almost Hundred percent, and you know I don't like saying it because I don't like praising myself. But yeah, a lot of the guys and the participants that we have, and they 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 say time to tackle family, and they say it when on the WhatsApp group and things like that. A lot of people feel that aspect, and and we really feel it. You know, myself and my wife as the group 
runners, you know, we feel that real family aspect of it. And I think because, you know, in the room there's been some really difficult stories shared and some really personal things shared, but it, it it's everyone it pulls everyone together and they, and they all create their own friendships and they all create their own peer support groups. Um and it's just it, it's so hard, it's so nice to see. And throughout this lockdown, you know, we've seen people find it difficult, of course. It's a difficult thing to be going through, but what we've seen is people within our groups really pull together and really fight each other's corner and be be at each other's back at any time. Uh, that, that, that's absolutely brilliant, and I think you'll probably recognise this yourself from playing at academies, growing up, and things. Is football is not really, from a playing point of view, always that inclusive. So even if yeah. you're in school, the best kids get picked in the school team and then if you get an academy then obviously you're quite fortunate but even then only a small percentage make it to the professional game and if you go around any stadium on a Saturday it's not full of people who are brilliant at football it's just full of football fans who probably yeah. would love to play more themselves but don't feel they're either good enough or they might feel they're a bit overweight or they shouldn't play so having a network there where you can just turn up play at any level any standard uh, let off some steam and then obviously start making friends outside of it as well. I think that's absolutely brilliant, mate, and something you shouldn't be proud to praise. Uh, you shouldn't be ashamed to praise either. You should be very proud of it. Yeah, I think we are. You know, we and and by the way, I love it. You know, it gives me a real sense of enjoyment. But, you know, as, as I've spoken about the anxiety of playing football for me a, a lot in my life and feeling the pressure. You know, I can go to time to tackle a couple of times a week. And I can just kick a ball because I love kicking a ball. I don't need to care about how I perform. I don't need to care about what the result is or anything like that. Because you know, if I get beaten on Saturday, I'm not a nice person to beat around. I'm sure my wife would would testament to that. Um, but I can go to time to tackle and I can just enjoy it. I can smile and I can laugh and I can just have fun. And it, it's brought back everything that I spoke about, loving about football when I was younger. It's brought it's helped bring all of that back. Yeah, it's helped sort of regain a love for it. Yeah, yeah, the pure element of football, I suppose, that way, don't you? And in yeah. terms of your actual playing career now, um, what do, you, what is your sort of thoughts and feelings moving forward? Is it just purely out of love now, or are you still trying to maybe keep moving up the the, the leagues and and maybe getting into full time again? What what's your sort of thoughts on that? I mean, my thoughts now are just just to play. I, I just to play for the love of it, just enjoy it, enjoy the last few years. And like I said, I'm 29 in the summer. God knows when football is going to start back after all this COVID stuff. I'm just going to play and enjoy it, and just enjoy going to football again. My wee boys, you know, he's five in the summer, so I've been roped into coaching his team <laughs> on Saturday mornings. So you know, my wife roped him into that on Facebook. So I'm signed up to do that. I was coaching them just before everything shut down. So. I'm just going to go for that now, you know, go there on a Saturday morning with him, go to my training a couple of nights a week, play on a Saturday afternoon, keep going to Time to Tackle, you know, we've got big plans for Time to Tackle, trying to make it grow, trying to get into different areas and things like that, obviously everything's on hold right now, but we've done a lot of work running up to the shutdown and the postponement of everything, but hopefully once it's safe we can get Time to Tackle back going and, and get into different areas and get impacting more lives positively and I think I'll use football in that aspect rather than focus on trying to reignite my own career. I think it is what it is now. I've made mistakes. I've 
I've had my time. I would never rule anything out, of course, but I just want to play football because I enjoy playing football now. And if I can have some success over the next few years, then great. If it does, if I'm not particularly successful, but I just keep playing, then that's also great. Yeah, no, that's great. And we've had some Covington former footballers on the show. Um, one of the sort of feedback we've had is enjoy it while you can. While you're playing, just enjoy it. And I think uh, a lot of people leave the game realizing that they should they should have enjoyed it a lot more. So I think just playing it for the enjoyment, it can lead to good things, but equally it's going to keep you happier. So uh, I think that's brilliant, mate. And just lastly, um, quite a difficult question, but if you could talk to your younger self about your mental health, what would your advice be now, now you've been through what you've been through? Uh, I think firstly, I'd probably give myself a bit of a cuddle and tell myself it's not my fault because I think, yeah. uh, you know, I blame myself a lot, you know. Um, I think my advice would be, and I, I'm really careful when I see these words and I, I don't want to, I always have the fear that telling people to talk all the time, you know, some people still find it difficult to talk and then maybe start to beat themselves up and think, am I not, like, why can't I talk about it? When I say talk about it and when I say be open about it, I'm not saying that you have to be open to the full world about how you're feeling. Just talk to someone you can trust. And if you don't think you have someone you can trust, then talk to a professional because you can always trust them. And you don't have to understand it. You don't have to fully understand what's going on in your mind. I think you don't have to try and put a finger on exactly where it's went wrong. But just getting it out, getting it out there, getting it out to someone, again, reiterating someone you can trust then it'll make a difference and the more you can do that and the more that you can keep on talking about it then trust me the easier it'll be and if I could have told myself that at a younger age maybe life would have been different but at the same time I'm not one to look back with regret I think everything in my life has happened for a reason The everything has brought me to this point today where I feel better than I've probably ever felt I've been through a lot but it's taught me so much I've connected with some fantastic people I've now got some amazing people in my life, I've got a wonderful wife and a great son so it, it is what it is I can't control it, I can't change it but I can move on every day for it and just be grateful to be here Welcome back, I'm still here with Aunt Ryan and Katie Katie, I, I think one of the interesting things I picked up whilst listening to Aaron was obviously he was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and spent some time in a psychiatric unit. I would suspect for the average person, their understanding of a psychiatric unit is kind of based around portrayals on television, straight jackets, padded cells, that sort of thing. But yeah. in reality, it's it's entirely different. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the interesting thing is when somebody is sectioned under the Mental Health Act, a lot of people have this vision that's been portrayed by the media that, you know, there's a lot of screaming going on there's a lot of being held down you know people being injected with drugs and all of these things that are put in place are to protect the person who's being sectioned and there are things put in place like you know they can't have certain things in the room that could lead to self-harm that could contribute to them attempting suicide so they have a lot of their own personal items taken away from them a lot of their freedom is restricted to try and you know protect them if you like um um yeah unfortunately the media's contribution to people who have mental health difficulties and 
people who have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act is to sensationalise these people as being violent, criminals, offenders, harmful to people in the community, which when people are sectioned, that kind of almost um, supports that theory. But largely, people who are sectioned and who have mental health difficulties, they're vulnerable people. They need care, they need support, they need protection. Um, and it's a real shame because stigma and judgment sticks with people who've had mental health difficulties and have got to the point where they have been placed in a facility for, for their own safe and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a lot of Aaron's problems came from maybe a lack of self-esteem and, and that turned into self-loathing and, and feelings of worthlessness. And I have to admit, listening to it was something that I resonated with quite a lot. It's something that I've struggled with a lot, particularly with relation to, to football, which was very similar to, to Aaron. Uh, Ryan, listening to that, is somebody who's, as you say, who's a similar age to Aaron and, and probably has you know, more or less a, a, a similar sort of upbringing in life, it's quite difficult to listen to, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I look at it from all, all different angles. He, he was the same age as me, uh, similar to Ant. He's got a, a young lad, um, similar to yourself, Dan. He's, he's played football at an academy at a young age and been let go. So I could see similarities in, in all three of us when we were speaking to him. And what was almost difficult to hear was the fact that it wasn't a case of he was ignorant of his struggles and that's why it got on top of him. He was fully aware of them at times and it still got on top of him. And he touched on coping mechanisms that he used and he used the phrase of, I didn't put the umbrella up when it was raining. So being aware of your problems doesn't mean you can still deal with them. And I think that's an important message to take from this. And I was speaking to somebody, one of my friends the other day, and they used that old saying that a problem shared is a problem halved. And I think that's very true. And um, having had some amazing people around him, I think his wife is a nurse herself and was very supportive of him. And I think he was very um, open in how much he trusted her and relied on her as well. So just because you've got support around you doesn't necessarily mean that you won't still have those thoughts. And I think anyone listening who is struggling, that's, that's got to be the biggest takeaway. The quicker you put your hand up, the, the sooner you get help, then the better the outcome um, but it doesn't mean that outcome's going to go away. So I think if you, what you've got to do is learn from it and find out what works best for you as a coping mechanism. And then move when you're moving forward, make sure you're using those coping mechanisms. Because one thing I haven't said was just because I, I got over that that particular issue. It's not to say I won't have one in the future. And I think that's the important thing. It's not something that ever goes away fully. Um, you may be fine for six years, six weeks, six days. Uh, you, you you can't say how long you're going to be sort of self-cured for if that makes sense so I think as long as you're using those mechanisms moving forward to, to help support yourself and you're not falling back into that trap then Aaron's story is one you can you can sort of um, take hope from yeah absolutely and I think I think one of the, the, the positive things for for anybody listening who's in a in a similar position and who maybe hasn't yet found the the outlet to speak up or hasn't you know been able to at this point is that as Ryan said, the, the best time is now. And for Aaron, if you, I think if you just go on his Twitter, which is um, at a Connolly ninety one, the the response that he's had in general has uh, uh, been overwhelmingly positive, and and he's a real inspiration for people who are finding themselves in those difficult positions. And I think 
a lot of people are worried and skeptical about talking out because they may feel as though they'll be judged or there'll be that stigma. But I think from Aaron's example and from lots of other people as well, is that if you stick your hand up, you'll be surprised how caring and how nice people are. One of the, the, the big things that he spoke about was his kind of road to recovery and whilst it's an ongoing recovery, as Ryan says, he's 12 months on from, from that instance, just over 12 months on. And I think it's incredible to see how far he's come in such a short space of time. And and whilst, as he said, the battle's not over yet, he's, he's you know, come an incredibly long way. He puts that, as you say, a lot down to the support of his family and, and he's got a young child and that seems to, to inspire him at his, at his darkest moments. And, and answer somebody who's similar age got a, a, a child of a similar age as well. That must have been incredibly resonant for you to listen to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the the bit where he's talking about um, the, his kid saying, uh, "Let's bring the forty, we go play forty with daddy." Uh, I think it was um, even thinking about it, it's quite emotional. Uh, I think it was it was just really heartwarming when you've go through his, his story and you see the football kind of chipped away at him, probably from his expectations of what he wanted to be as a footballer, uh, to the bit where football has now given him this kind of new lease of life. And it's all about, for me, it's just a massive uh, change in mindset that he's that he's had with football. You know, he's not seeing football as a, um, as a way of, you know, making something of himself. Um, in terms of his individual gain, he's now using it to to help others. And you know, it was just a simple thing of do you want to go play football with your son? And he does that every every day. I think there's a lot of videos on his on his Twitter where they're, where they're playing football. It's it's really heartwarming. Um, and I think as you were talking about before as well, when you know you stick your hand up and you ask for support, there was the the moment where he he goes to his um, he goes to his managers and, and says, "Look, I'm struggling with this." And his assistant manager's uh, quite well trained in mental health, <laughs> which was, you know, really, really coincidental to be honest. But really, really good. You know, it wasn't that he he couldn't have gone and spoke and and anything like that. It was when he did speak, there was someone there straight away, uh, which was really nice to hear. Um, his Twitter is is really good, um, and he, he does some really good things on there and puts some really nice stories out. Um, I actually saw the videos of of his wife um, and talking about how she viewed those incidents that that happened in his life, um, which was really really good to hear. Um, just to see what that other side was like for the other person involved. Um, and so I think we'll try and put a little link up to those videos as well because I think they're really good to to listen to and get an understanding of of how that uh, whole story worked out and how it works as well. Um, and he also put a great tweet up the other day um, <laughs> about him and his little lad. And uh, I think Domino's actually got in touch and, and sent him a free Domino's as well, which was really really sweet. So um, you know, he, he's just a it was just a really heartbreaking heartwarming story to listen to and um, but it just shows you know like you said you stick your hand up and and try and get some help and it will come it might take a long time it probably still a long time for Aaron right now but you will be able to get there there is a road so it's not blocked off there is a road to recovery 
I can, uh, you know, I've known you a long time, Ant, and I'm not surprised to see that you picked up on the fact that there was a Domino's being delivered. (laughs) (laughs) It seems seems right on brand for you. And I think going back to the the, the very start of this episode when we were talking about um, yourself playing playing football in, in, in the park with, with your little lads and you know whilst whilst the joke that you know you kick the ball at him and what have you before that he was running around with the ball and it was lovely it was it was proper nice to see and you know i i can see how that type of thing could be very powerful for someone in in that position um for anyone who's listening who has been affected by any of the things that we've spoken about this today you there are places you can go to reach out um samaritans mind calm and as Katie's mentioned, Men Too has got a lot of resources and a lot of signposting for for different places. So, as we always say, don't suffer in silence. And and you know it is okay to speak. And there are a lot of places that are willing to listen to you and and help you out. Thank you for for listening today, and and thank you for being with us. If you have enjoyed the episode, then give it a like, give it a share on iTunes, send it on to your mates, to your family, to to anyone you work with, and and all your network. Our next episode is out a week today on the 18th of May and we'll be speaking to Luke Aaron Moore, who is one quarter of the Football Ramble, the the country's biggest independent sports podcast. And yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Markin underscore man using the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. Thanks for listening. And who's the the best player you've either played with or against? Uh, Played against Majid Bouguera. who was at Rangers, Algerian at Nashville. He's probably the best player I played against. Best player I played with, probably Ryan Stevenson, who had a period at Ipswich down south, was at Hearts as well. Was he at Air with you, was he? Ah, uh, was it Air with Ryan Stevenson? I mean, yeah, I played I with remember, James Forrest. I remember him. I play- yeah, I played with James Forrest at youth level, but sort of in my adult or my adult career, the best player I played with probably Ryan Stevenson. Uh, Aaron, which footballer did you pretend to be when you were growing up? Oh, Henrik Larson. Just like yeah. every Celtic fan of my era. Uh, actually, on Friday night, his last ever Celtic match was replayed on BBC Scotland and me and my wife are sitting on the couch nearly crying. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you've attended one of the best derbies in the world, but if you could attend any derby in the world, what would it be? Now, I've obviously been to the Glasgow derby a few times and I think it's probably unbeatable, but if I could attend any other derby in the world, probably Boca Juniors River Plate. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Right, well, totally. So the next question is 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 a crucial one, and it's it's uh, it could potentially split the room. I think, Adam. So when oh. you eat a muller corner, do you mix the fruit and the yogurt, or do you eat them separately? Oh, mix. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Told you that nobody eats the fruit separately. I'm telling you, will find somebody. I promise you. <laughs> it's a if thing. You, yeah. If you find somebody, then they're, they're weird. Yeah. <laughs> is Scott Brown the hardest man in Scotland or is that a myth? He is 100% run Scottish football. <laughs> <laughs> so this might be a bit niche, yep. but would, who would you rather prefer, The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin? Oh, that's a hard one. Ooh, see, I knew he'd know wrestling. <laughs> uh, I think The Rock. Yeah, I'd go for The Rock all day. I would. Yeah. All right, well, um, go Steve Austin then. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you look like him now, you've shaved your head, Um And who would be your ideal Scotland manager if you could pick, Aaron? 
Uh, I mean Guardiola. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Guardiola. <laughs> You'd be your relatively uh, realistic option. <laughs> manager. Uh, I'm not. Un- I'm not too unhappy with Steve Clark. I think the work he done at Kilmarnock, based on the quality of squad that he probably has at his disposal, I suspect that Steve Clark could probably do quite well. I wouldn't mind Neil Lennon getting a wee shot at the Scotland job at some point, but I think we'd lose half our fan base. <laughs> There's not many of them left there, but it's been a difficult. Great run by Larson! He's done it again! Glorious goal by Larson! Outstripping the Rangers' defence. And there might have been a possibility of Rangers coming back in that, but that is Larson in full majestic flow.